Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys, episode 99, Madison Square Garden. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Today's topic is one of the most recognizable names in New York landmarks. Maybe its architecture doesn't stand out, but the name Madison Square Garden says premier entertainment. It's, you know, Greg, it actually bills itself as the world's most famous arena. It's the home of several New York sports teams. It's basically where you go to see the biggest names in music. Or nominate a president. This Madison Square Garden, which, believe it or not, is the fourth one, is, I think, the least interesting Madison Square Garden. In fact, there were three before it that basically shaped New York culture. We can answer the question immediate in everybody's mind when they first hear about the history of Madison Square Garden. Why is Madison Square Garden not in Madison Square? This story has some wild personalities. This story has lots of competition. This story has nudity. And smack dab in the middle of the story, there's a murder. So, ladies and gentlemen, take your seats and join us for our history of Madison Square Garden. All right, Greg. Well, before we get into the histories of MSG, and I'm not talking about the Chinese flavoring, perhaps you could offer a little situation. Let me orient us towards the new MSG because we're, it's going to take us a while to go back to that particular building, the current one. So the current uh -huh. Madison Square Garden is situated between 7th and 8th Avenues and between 31st and 33rd Streets. As we said, this is a huge entertainment complex. It currently sits on top of the current Penn Station and, in fact, sits in the spot where the old Penn Station used to be sitting. And we'll get to all that later. The Madison Square Garden complex is owned by Cablevision, and the complex itself is part of a network of performance spaces called MSG Entertainment. And MSG Entertainment also includes Radio City Music Hall and the Beacon Theater and 
the smaller theater that's contained within the Madison Square Garden complex, the Wamu Theater. I should add that the Madison Square Garden is the home of several New York sports teams, including home of the New York Rangers, the New York Knicks, and the New York Liberty. So that is today's Madison Square Garden, but we're going to be rewinding a bit to the original Madison Square. Yeah, it sounds odd. We're going to answer the question of why it moved uptown, but we're going to begin our story here with a brief history of Madison Square Park. This place is on Broadway and Fifth Avenue between 23rd and 26th Street. In my personal opinion, one of the most architecturally beautiful parks in Manhattan because sitting around it, you have, of course, the Flatiron Building just to the south of it. Mm-hmm. You have the New York Life Building and the MetLife Tower over on the east side. Inside, if you're wandering around Madison Park, you can also you know, stop and get a burger at the Shake Shack. It also features one of New York's only coin-operated self-cleaning bathrooms. Did you know that? Fascinating, tr- yes. I think that was an experiment a while back. <laughs> you should try that out. Um, it has lots of modern art installations, and of course, there's lots of old statuary all over the place. And that's between Madison and Fifth slash Broadway, kind of where Fifth and Broadway... Correct. That whole plaza area, kind of right in front of the Flatiron Building, is Madison Square, but Madison Park is, of course, comprises most of that. Now, as we know in New York history, there's basically two kinds of parks. There's the ones like Central Park and Prospect Park which are these huge public projects that are sculpted from scratch, right, from the earth. Then you have places like Washington Square Park and Union Square and Madison Park, which are actually derived from pre-existing cleared spaces. The roots of this particular area actually go back all the way to 1686. It was deemed public property by a charter of the New York Colony by the governor at the time, Thomas Dongan. Now, what does that really mean to be a public property? in 1686 because that doesn't mean park necessarily it means a lot of different things for instance it was a potter's field like so many parks it was a place to bury bodies it was a parade ground for the military and it even held an arsenal here and at this time of course there wasn't the commissioner's plan had not yet imposed the streets upon the city so it wasn't necessarily these exact dimensions no it wasn't it wasn't quite cut through with fifth avenue and broadway was of course a a far less ambitious little path that ran through it. And Madison Avenue, well, not there. No. So from 1811 to 1825, it was an arsenal for the U.S. Army. It would actually, in 1814, take on its current name. It would be named for James Madison, the fourth president of the United States. In the 1840s and 1850s, the area was actually distinguished by a very well-known tavern that sat in this area called the Madison Cottage. It was a roadhouse. It was a big gathering place. And it was when you said that you were, you know, going uptown to Madison, this is where you went to the Madison Cottage. You know, the whole area during the Civil War saw a lot of devastation of of the draft riots. And then what happened, as you know, around the 1860s and the 1870s, the whole neighborhood rebounds greatly because Manhattan High Society moves up the island very slowly. All the great townhouses and all the places where all the wealthy people congregate are between here and Union Square and even up towards 34th Street. We have lots of podcasts that touch upon this, of course, Tin Pan Alley, Chelsea Hotel. Ladies Mile, of course, would develop just to the south of Madison Park. This is the major development of department stores. Which Uh, would start out around Union Square and then creep up. Right. And would just be to the south of Madison Square Park. Of course, there were a host of great theaters that would be sit all along here, along Broadway and, of course, along 23rd Street. In a sense... Madison Square Park in 1870 is almost as iconic and bustling as Times Square is today. Mm. If you think about it, there's so much activity happening at that time. There's also all these fabulous hotels. There's the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which is sitting right here, which is the most famous hotel of this particular era. 
So you have these huge hotels, and you have the stores, and the women shopping, and the restaurant. And- it's like the hot spot, basically, in this eighteen in the eighteen seventies. As a matter of fact, Madison Square Park was relandscaped in eighteen seventy, and it was evened out to some of its current dimensions right now. In eighteen seventy five, the Statue of Liberty's arm and torch. This was before it was, of course, mounted in New York Harbor. But as they were trying to raise money and awareness, they kind of circulated this arm throughout the United States, and so. It sat here in Madison Square Park in 1875. And oh. would remain there until 1884 when it went off to Paris. So throughout the beginning of this story, just imagine this park with the statue's lovely arm jutting up in the middle. And just imagine it with this particular feature, because in 1880, this was one of the first neighborhoods to receive outdoor electric lights. The first year, we get these 20-foot posts and light would just emanate from them. The next year, in 1881, they put up these 160-foot sun towers that would be light that would just spread throughout the street. I'm sure it would create all these sort of bizarre shadows, but this was in the flat iron iron area, and of course, I'm sure that arm cast a little bit of a shadow itself. Of course, in the 1890s, this would be also one of the first areas for electric signage as well. And by, of course, the turn of the century, it would, of course, fully participate in the skyscraper rage with the buildings I had mentioned earlier, the Flatiron Building in 1902 and the MetLife Tower in 1909. To sum it all up, what I'm trying to say is this is where people were at. This is where they were collecting in the 1860s and Especially, 1870s. right, the end of the 19th century. Now, there's two things that are very crucial to the rest of our story here. The first one is, believe it or not, Madison Square Park is hugely important to the beginnings of baseball. So it has a tie to sports even before Madison Square Garden even exists. The New York Knickerbockers, which are the first organized uniformed baseball team, they formed in 1840. They would, of course, make their name much later when they moved out to Hoboken and played in an area called the Elysian Fields. But from 1842 to 1845, now this is before the the neighborhood gets really fancy because they probably couldn't play baseball in a really fancy neighborhood now. But in 1842 to 1845, they actually played one of the very first organized baseball games here at the park. Wow, interesting. So it already has this bond to professional sports. Right, it's got this connection to sports. The second thing is something that would be built right to the northeast of the park. And that would be a depot for the New York and Harlem Railroad, which would be built in 1831. And we do get into the New York and Harlem Railroad in the Grand Central podcast. Mm -hmm. But to review very quickly, we're talking about Commodore Vanderbilt's railroad, the New York and Harlem Railroad. And he had this train shed that was on the block between 26th and 27th at 4th Avenue, which is today's Park Avenue, and between 4th and Madison. So really just uh, the northeastern corner of Madison Square Park, if you can imagine that spot right there. And please do try to imagine Mm -hmm. that spot because we're going to be talking about it for much of the rest of the podcast. It's almost, it's easier to imagine it if you if you can just erase all, because there's so much development now, especially because that's right. Park Avenue, just to imagine none of those buildings there, it does make sense that there would be a big shed there. And of course, as as people move up to this neighborhood, of course, there would be a depot right there. No, but you didn't get on the train there, Greg. Now, oh. This was just a shed to store the cars for the railroad. You still had to go uptown a little bit. I believe it was like 33rd Street. Mm-hmm. The cars were kept oh, right. in the depot. Not only was it cars, but 
horses too. And so there were stables mixed in with this sort of shed that contained all of these cars. And the horses pulled the cars up to the depot and people would get on there and then speed off north and and such. Now, clearly this is before the neighborhood gets fancy. Right. Okay. But it was at least fancy enough that there were New York City regulations that the steam locomotive engines could not actually go down and pick up the cars themselves. You had to have the horses go up and drag these things up Park Avenue. So you had that scene in the northeast corner of Madison Square. Imagine stables. Imagine sheds. It's not pretty. And in 1871, when the first version of Grand Central Terminal opened uptown, it was suddenly obsolete. I mean, why would you have horses pulling cars up Park Avenue when you didn't need that anymore? Grand Central Depot then opens in 1871. The first one. one, Right. right. Okay. Now, what do you do with this lot? What do you do with this sort of outdoor shed? Well, in steps a New York showman who we love named Phineas T. Barnum. Now, P.T. Barnum saw he could sniff out an opportunity, and in 1873, he joined forces with another showman by the name of W.C. Coop to lease the yard from the Vanderbilts. He opened the Great Roman Hippodrome. I also saw it referred to as the Monster Classical and Geological Hippodrome. Well, that's selling a lot there. (laughs) Well, he could sell. And I should interject, by this time, Barnum is quite an icon in New York. I mean, his American Museum has been open for quite a while. So when he knocks on the Vanderbilt's door... Of it's course. Opened. Sure, of course. So as you had mentioned before, Greg, it made sense that PT wanted to set up shop around Madison Square because, of course, along 23rd Street, you had all the theaters. So they wall off the area, they put up their tent, and they charge people a dollar to come in and see a show that was kind of a mix of um, a circus with acrobats and stunts and such, and a zoo with Arabian horses and, and such, and a museum where you might have oddities and precious stones and other such delights. Well, as we know from like vaudeville and other things, like sort of entertainment forms are a little bit looser back then. So I guess it's just a catch-all entertainment center that Barnum's created here. Well, and it worked. I mean, he knew how to put on a show. However, the only downside of this spot was that because it was a tent, well, it only really worked when it was warm outside. When the harsh winter came, nobody was going to pay a dollar to come inside. Seasonal entertainment, yes. So he got out of the space, and in 1874, a man named Patrick Gilmore stepped in. Now, he was the nation's most famous band leader, Greg. That's amazing, because I've, I've never heard him before. I've never heard his You've never music. heard him play? <laughs> I've never heard any of his recordings. <laughs> well, oh, right. You no, know, he, was, he was the official band leader of the Union Army during the Civil War, so right. he had orchestrated quite a career for himself. So it makes sense that he might take up the reins from Barnum here. A passing of the baton. Sure, if you will. So he prettied it up a little. He introduced his own landscaping, and he brought in some real showstopper numbers. He brought in some temperance speakers, (laughs) some flower shows, you know, some band concerts that he conducted. Sexy. Yeah, and he introduced to New York something that would become one of the city's most cherished institutions, the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Right, right. The, of course, the organization was nearby Gramercy Park, organized in the Westminster Hotel. But this is where they had their very first dog show, was here at the Gilmore Gardens. Exactly. However, unfortunately, all those temperance speakers didn't really pay off. So in steps William Kissam Vanderbilt. He would be a relation to the Commodore, I believe. And he decides that he's going to take back the family lease on the spot and that they should put up a structure that should be focused on presenting sporting events. 
he made it a little bit more majestic. He added a second level to the facade on the Mad- Madison Avenue side. Otherwise, the place was largely the same structure that it had been. And most importantly for our story today, Greg, he decided to give it a new name, Madison Square Garden. Which makes sense. It combines the Gilmore Gardens with, right. of course, the location next right. to Madison Square. Exactly. And it was also very sort of in vogue to use the term garden, like pleasure garden. Niblo's Garden. Sure. All of right, Vauxhall Gardens, all these different places that were open in Manhattan at the time. Because he had a penchant for all things athletic, he introduced to the city the bicycle racing velodrome, where cyclists would race around a giant oval track, which was actually the most important velodrome track in the United States. Well, as I'll get into, which I find interesting, is this was actually a huge draw for high society to sit and watch cycling as they would go around in circles. And and they wouldn't just race for like a couple... You know, for 30 minutes or something, so he would have these events where people would race for six days. The six-day race would be a very popular thing that people would enjoy all over the place, and they would call it Madison's. These six-day races would right. be called Madison's, and it's named after debuting here at Madison Square Garden. One story I really liked that I got from Ellis's The Epic of New York was during the blizzard of 1888. P.T. was actually putting on his show in Madison Square Garden. It was snowing like mad. There were five-foot drifts of snow that were up against the doors of Madison Square Garden. And there were all kinds of newspaper men who had been invited to go VIPs and sit ringside. Mm Mm-hmm. They were urging P.T. Barnum to actually call off the circus that night because, well, you know, it was dangerous to have people wandering up, venturing out into the snow, trudging through. Sure. Only 200 people showed up for an arena that could seat 10,000. Mm-hmm. And with only 200 people in the crowd, well, what did P.T. do? He said, the show must go on. He cracked a whip at 8 o'clock and started the circus, and he brought out champagne and served it to all the people sitting ringside who got incredibly drunk. And they (laughs) took over and got into the ring, made a fool out of themselves, and the clowns themselves were sitting down in the chairs cheering them on. <laughs> that, no, that's a showman. That's worth that's worth trudging through a blizzard. That's worth risking your life for. <laughs> I'd risk my life for it right now. But Greg, they still had a problem with Madison Square Garden. It only worked during the warmer months. It was deserted in the winter. Vanderbilt looked at this place. He looked at his, quote, patched up, grimy, drafty, combustible old shell and decided he was going to sell it in 1887 to a group of developers who wanted to build a year-round spot. This group of developers made up of really important New Yorkers, including Andrew Carnegie, James Stillman, W.W. Astor, and J.P. Morgan as its president. And here's what's interesting, or perhaps a little odd, about what this group was about. It was a, a group to make, of course, a new Madison Square Garden, but ostensibly... It was about building a new place so all of high society could go watch horses. The National Horse Race was a th- event that happened here every year. It also had an accompanying horse show ball, it was, which was a huge Where social... The horses would dance? Yes, I think they'd be in cotillion gowns and, and corsages <laughs> and it got very messy. No, the, um, it would be a, a huge social holiday, basically. One of the grandest social events of the 1880s. You can't really have this kind of thing and then go to the actual horse race and in this kind of trashy, ill-fitting building. Not an elegant space for the upper class. Not at all. Just simply wouldn't do. 
So they scrapped that building. They started a new one in the summer of 1889, and it took them exactly a year to finish it. It finished in June of 1890. The building they created, Tom, I don't have to tell you, is one of the greatest buildings in New York City at the time by one of New York's greatest architectural firms. And what was that firm? McKim Meaden White. This building was created by Stanford White, in fact. So it's one of the most legendary structures in New York City. Of course, McKim Meaden White, they're sort of the demigods of the Beaux-Arts style. This was a Renaissance revival building with a little bit of a Moorish touch. Moorish being the sort of Middle Ages, Islamic, Spanish, right, Mediterranean Spanish style. Um, yes. The entranceway of the building was a nod to the Grand Opera House in Paris. The front of the whole building was a cream-colored brick and terracotta front. Of course, the most notable part of the building that caught your eye from miles around was that famous 32-story tower. This tower would be equipped with elevators. It would actually serve as a, a little bit of a lookout, an observation deck. So you can just look out over the whole city. And what would have made this interesting is this building was the second tallest building in New York City in 1890. The tallest building being the World Building, which was built that same year. So literally, one year before this, the tallest building in New York City was Trinity Church. So now, right. one year later, you have two other structures that now top that world building downtown and this, the Madison Square Garden And that Tower. was a huge deal, too, for people. It should be noted that this was not necessarily a matter of pride that these man-made towers intended for commercial purposes were now towering over churches and religious institutions. In fact, People were questioning, well, are the churches as tall as God can build? Get this. It's not just a normal non-religious building. At the top, tippy top of the Madison Square Garden Tower is perhaps one of the most recognizable features of the building. This 18-foot ornamental copper nude beauty, a nude woman weather vane, the goddess Diana with a bow and arrow. Uh, around her shoulders, she actually had a billowy copper cape that would catch the drama of the wind. So she'd swirl around. So you would look up at her and she may be just spinning around. Uh, she must have been quite a sight to behold. I, I must think that the early, the very first comic book writers who lived and experienced New York must have looked up and saw this person with a cape <laughs> flying to the sky. And they might have given them some inspirations. The original Diana that was up there was a little bit too heavy. She was actually one ton. They replaced her the next year with a 13-foot version. Oddly enough, and I recommend everyone taking a little road trip, if you want to see this statue, it's still around, but it's in Philadelphia. She, oh, it's at okay. the If you go into the entranceway of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, you'll see the Madison Square Garden, Diana. She's sitting right there. It's amazing. And this is the original or the second one? This is the second one. The original one, the larger one, was actually shipped off to the Chicago International Exposition. This uh -huh. was, of course, the legendary architectural World Fair that was in Chicago. Fans of Devil in the White City. May know something about this. Perk your ears. But this was eventually damaged in a fire. So that one doesn't, I don't believe, exist in any form anymore. But the second one you can go to Philadelphia and find. This statue was designed by uh, Augustus St. Gaudens, which is the premier sculptor and designer of the Beaux Arts period. And his model was this woman named Julia Baird. And she was one of the most popular models for sculptures in the city and perhaps in the whole United States. What made it so shocking was, of course, you had a nude woman right. on one of the tallest buildings in New York. And, she, you know, she would be interviewed by the press like she became sort of a scandal, scandalous star of the time. She later fell into 
obscurity, but this this was her moment in time, and she took it for what it was worth. Now, let me discuss briefly some of the other parts of the building, of course. it's This was the largest amphitheater in the United States at the time. Anywhere from eight to 10,000 people with lots of additional spaces for folding chairs and standing room. Three tiers of spectator boxes in this amphitheater with one grand box right over the main entrance for a very special guest. And this box could hold off almost 40 to 50 people. Wow. That was for a very fancy person. The amphitheater had a sliding skylight. Now, I mean, you can imagine how impressive and bold looking sure. this must have been, but it wasn't just done for an open air experience. It was done for ventilation. You had thousands of people sitting in this room generating a lot of heat, you know. And we should just add that this would be a, a detail that Stanford White, who designed this, borrowed directly from Roman architecture because he was taking these trips abroad, you know, as he learned his skills and he looked for inspiration, he was visiting Roman amphitheaters and such throughout Italy, throughout the south of France. He knew what he was doing because that's an old Roman touch. Other spaces in this building, there was a 1,200-seat theater, which the New York Times article that I read about it said it was thoroughly equipped for the presentation of light operas and farce comedies. There was a restaurant in the building, one of the biggest in the city, uh, right above that restaurant, there was a concert hall that would seat over a thousand people there. And then, of course, most notoriously, you have the rooftop garden, um, which overlooked the whole city and was one of the most elegant spaces in all the city. So at this time, then, we've gone from a Madison Square Garden that was really nothing more than like a walled off tent to something that could seat thousands upon thousands of people on multiple levels in multiple venues. So this glorious building was opened on June 16, 1890, with a huge party for 17,000 people. All the toasts of New York, with the Whitneys and the Morgans and the Pierponts, and if you have a bold name, then and you were 16, there. And 16,900 others. <laughs> and, and other people. Some of the major events, as we, you mentioned the six-day races, those would, be, would begin in 1891, and we become quite a fixture here at Madison Square Garden. Also in the 1890s, there would be an aquatic tank built here so that people could enjoy some of the U.S.'s first water polo matches, uh -huh. which would be here. In 1897, in that very same area, I can only imagine, I only assume, were the very first fly casting fishing tournaments. Fly fishing? Yes. Like <laughs> a river runs through it? Like fly fishing here in Madison. I can't even imagine how that would work or why that would be interesting to watch. But here it was. There was, of course, all <laughs> variety of, of indoor sports that would happen here. But non-sporting events were, were also debuted in this place because of, you know, it's a huge space. You can do all sorts of things here. In the year 1900 would be the very first automobile show. In 1919 would be the debut of the newly merged Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Wow. Would have their very first performance. Very appropriate being in this space, naturally. And in 1924, one of the last events that would happen in this building would be the Democratic National Convention uh -huh. um, um, would be held here. And they nominated, of course, the iconic politician, someone that like whose name trips off all of our mouths, John W. Davis. He, was, he ran for president? He ran for president. He was a Democrat. In fact, he was defeated by Calvin Coolidge that year. There were tons of amazing events, both sporting and non-sporting events. And that would also kick off the tradition of political conventions at Madison Square Garden. Yes, uh, of which there would be a few. But oddly, one of the most known events that happened in Madison Square Garden, one of the most written about, most scandalous events, yes. was nothing that Even was... Even filmed. 
dramatized and filmed was something that was not planned it was an unscripted tragedy it was don't give it away greg let's just rewind (laughs) and talk about the architect himself stanford white yes he was a dashing man stanford he was 37 when madison square garden opened in 1890 he was six foot three had red hair energetic like you said filled with talent and inspiration that he had taken from a world of travel now he was married and he had a son they lived up near gramercy park but stanford had all kinds of extramarital affairs and people kind of knew about it stanny as he was known by others had something of a taste for chorus girls but nobody really objected or they didn't to his face because of his immense talent now he met evelyn nesbitt in 1901 when she was 16 and he was 47. So with 31 year difference, no big deal. (laughs) She was an actress and she was an artist's model. She had moved from Pittsburgh, her father had passed away and she was really supporting her mother and her brother by being an artist model and being in various shows and being a chorus girl. At the time, Stanford White was keeping a bachelor pad on West 24th Street, which was just upstairs from the FAO Schwartz toy store. Wow, how inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) He also kept offices, though some would say a bachelor pad, in the tower you were talking about over Madison Square Garden. But this particular episode happened on 24th Street. Up in his apartment, he had, among other things, and odd rooms, he had a red velvet swing that he liked to have his girls come up in various states of undress, sit in, and let him push them. He had his own little kinks. <laughs> well, one night, Evelyn Nesbitt, once she had caught his attention, came over. Was She actually came up through the back by, like, the F.A.L. Schwartz loading dock, went upstairs, had a glass of champagne to loosen up a couple more glasses. She got in the swing and did a little number for him, which she claimed later was just for aesthetic purposes. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. He just liked the aesthetics. And then he got her drunk on more champagne and allegedly took advantage of her up in his mirrored room, which was further upstairs, which was a 10 by 10 foot room covered with mirrors on the walls and ceiling. She passed out and she woke up. And as she said later in the trial, I entered that room a virgin, but didn't come out one. So what happened now? So Well, like his other affairs, this one sort of petered out and he went on to the next chorus girl. She ended up marrying a man named Harry Thaw. Now Harry, he was young, he was extremely rich, and he was also a bit mentally unstable and you could even say disturbed. He was incredibly jealous of Stanford White, who he would refer to as the Beast. Mm -hmm. He carried a gun with him and he was addicted to cocaine and he would sometimes also whip the women he was with. Oh, he doesn't sound much better. No. No. He had proposed to Evelyn several times, and she had rejected him, and he blamed it on the beast, you know. Well, unfortunately, she finally accepted, and they were married on April 4th, 1905. Now, Thaw became increasingly jealous of whatever had happened between White and Nesbitt. And on June 25th, 1906, just a year after their marriage, they had dinner that night, and they saw Stanford White at the restaurant. Then they wound up... Of Madison Square Garden. On the rooftop restaurant and performance space, Mm -hmm. where they were attending a nighttime performance of the show Mamselle Champagne. Do we know the plot of Mamselle Champagne? Has it been... Has it been revived or anything? Well, we just know that there's a chorus number called I Could Love a Million Girls. Okay. Which sounds like Stanford. Right. Right. It was a hot night, although 
Thaw was wearing a tuxedo, and Stanford White had great seats. Thaw was with Nesbitt and some other friends toward the back. And during this number, I could love a million girls around 11 o'clock at night. Thaw's whole party got up. They went to leave. But Thaw returned, walked calmly up to Stanford White, and shot him three times in the head, killing him instantly, point blank. The event in the mirrored room, that was from 1901, correct? Yes, from 1901. So he was reacting to an event that had happened before he had even met Nesbitt and five years previous. He also thought that he was perhaps restoring the honor of his wife and don't discount the fact that he was mentally disturbed. (laughs) And then performed this seriously heinous, violent crime in an extremely public place in the building that the man he was killing had in fact, designed. designed. During the trial, the papers went crazy with this story, calling it the trial of the century. Every last detail was dragged out of Evelyn Nesbitt, other chorus girls, other people who had been in the swing, and the public bought day after day, week after week, issues of this story being stretched out. Mm-hmm. The first trial ended in a hung jury, then they came back, and he was acquitted for reasons of temporary insanity. This, what a salacious, tragic story for almost everybody involved. Yeah, and Thaw, he went off to a home for the mentally deranged in upstate New York. He, he escaped to Canada. He escaped a couple times. He was finally released in 1915 and died in 1947. Evelyn Nesbitt, she continued to tell her story for the rest of her life. She, you know, worked it into a movie. She wrote two different books. This became her story, and she died in 1967. Sorry for bringing it down. I feel so weird going back to a sporting arena now <laughs> after all of that. That is a heartbreaking story. I will have to say this. Stanford did not get to see the deterioration of and destruction of his own building. The, his no, great he left it in its prime. And that, and that was what year? 1906. His masterpiece here, this Madison Square Garden, would only be around for just a couple more decades. Essentially, what would happen with changing tastes and changing management of the place, it would start to lose a lot of money. It eventually ended up in the hands of the New York Life Insurance Company in 1916. And they decided, because it was losing all this money, it just wasn't in fashion anymore to be doing this. And also there was a lot of other distractions, namely film, that were taking away from the audiences that would come here. They decided that they were going to knock it down and they were going to put a skyscraper here. Because you could make a lot more money off of that. And everyone was doing it. And everyone was doing it in this neighborhood. And so this is the part of the story, Tom. Yes. When in strolls a flamboyant character here. Someone, I know we just <laughs> talked about a few flamboyant characters. This one changes the direction of Madison Square Garden for the best, I think. Um, his name is Tex Ricard. Mm-hmm. Tex would be, in my mind, a sort of a modern Renaissance man, a jack of all trades. He was born in Kansas City, Missouri. As a teen, he moved out to the West during the gold rush and became a miner. For a short period of time. While he was out there, he opened up a saloon and he started promoting boxing matches and um, had a real flair for it. He left the country for a while, went to South America and actually made his fortune while he was down there. He came back 
around this time that Madison Square Garden was, you know, sadly destroyed. But the name Madison Square Garden meant so much still, and especially at this period of time when sporting events weren't a thing that high-class people did. It was something that working people did. So he wanted a space to launch boxing matches and a lot of other different things. And this name, Madison Square Garden, still had a value. So he basically negotiated and acquired the rights for the name of Madison Square Garden. But of course, he didn't have a space for it because it was being used for something else. So what he did instead, he bought some cheaper land a little further up in Manhattan. He bought some old property, a site of some barns where streetcars were being held. Not again. (laughs) And these weren't being used anymore, so they need to clear that area out. He built the third Madison Square Garden up at 8th Avenue and 50th Street, nowhere near Madison Square Park. This new building was built in 250 days, and it is completely different than the other Madison Square Garden. And what year are we? 1925. In fact, the door would open in December 15th of 1925. This building would basically be a plain, uninteresting box. Its most notable feature would not be a nude woman on top of the building, but in fact would be this large, well-lit marquee like on the very front of it. It wasn't about what was going on outside. It was about what was going on inside. This building could seat more than 18,000 spectators. Incredible. It was far more suitable to what Ricard wanted to do. In in, in essence, he basically creates the identity, the association that we have for Madison Square Garden today, which is chiefly for sporting events, and it's chiefly just for, for regular people to go. It was propped up by three major things. I mean, there's so many things that happened in this building at this time. One of the prime reasons is, of course, course, as I mentioned, it was to promote boxing. Tex was actually in business. One of his partners was the boxer Jack Dempsey. This would be the centerpiece in the United States for prize fighting. It actually helped form the modern rules and traditions of modern boxing. Between 1925 and 45, 32 world champion fights would be would be here. Basically, if you're a boxing fan, this is your temple, this particular building, this Madison Square Garden. As a matter of fact, I read, Tom, in 1941, now I don't know any of these people. <laughs> I'm not a boxing aficionado. Sure, you do, Greg. Just in 1941, a boxing match between Fritzy Zivic and Henry Armstrong became the most attended event ever in Madison Square Garden history. To this day, even today, it was that many people crammed in to see this. To, to, wow. Do they do they have a number on that? I don't. But it had to obviously be the number of seats plus. Hundreds of other people just crammed into the theater. Now, also, secondly, another thing, another tentpole of this Madison Square Garden were the New York Rangers, the hockey team which made their debut here. In fact, the New York Rangers are a concoction of Ricards himself. New York actually at this time actually had a hockey team before the Rangers. They were called the New York Americans. And in 1925, in the debut of Madison Square Garden, they played here. And the Tex didn't own the Americans. They were just, you know, they were just playing there. And he was like, I can make a lot of money doing this. I want my own team. He wants a bigger share of the cut. So he develops his own team. And the press actually names this team. They call them in the press. They call them Texas Rangers. You know, oh. like a little play on words. Right. And that's where the word, that's where the Rangers comes from. Is this sort of nickname. The third tentpole, and arguably the biggest, at least financially, was the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus would come here every year and would make 
hand over fist large amounts of money for them. It would almost be more popular than most of the sporting events. In fact, a lot of sporting events had to be rescheduled to accommodate these circus crowds. I, you know, as somebody who loves a circus, I am so happy that Barnum and the circus in general has been a part of Madison Square Garden's history from and, the very right, beginning. And, and all these multiple incarnations of it. Now, I have one more thing that I will mention about this particular Madison Square yes. Garden. Interestingly, there were no political conventions during this phase of the garden. However, what was here, it was something politically related. That is, it was a birthday celebration of John F. Kennedy that was mm-hmm. in May 19th of 1962. We all know that, of course, because this is when Marilyn Monroe got up on the stage and she sang her little breathy, little happy birthday. Mr. President. Exactly. And, but here's the sort of macabre thing about that is M- Marilyn Monroe would die just three months after that performance. A lot of history coursed through this particular building. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, it's not a great building. And actually, inside, there were a lot of bad seats. It wasn't ventilated very well. It wasn't designed with that attention that Stanford White had given the prior building. It didn't, certainly didn't have a retractable sunroof. So because of that, the, the inside needs to improve. So in 1968, this version of Madison Square Garden gets completely torn down. And today, it's actually the home of One Worldwide Plaza, which is this 47-story office tower that right. sits there today. This sort of pink building. This leads us, of course, to the current structure. So now we're at Madison Square Garden 4. And you know, I just... I think we've talked about so many fascinating things. It's had such an illustrious history up to this point that, Greg, that's all I'm going to say about it. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, it's, it doesn't have the sexiness. It doesn't have no, the... No, the, no. Um, the creation of it is, of course, embedded in the destruction of Penn Station. So right. as a historian... And, and so we're already kind of engineered to dislike the roots of this building. So let's just pull back and say that the new Madison Square Garden is built upon the old Pennsylvania Station. Now, for much, much more about the old Penn Station please see the podcast that we have on it. It was built in 1901 and designed by McKim, Mead, and White. So Stanford White was actually involved in the design of the original train station, which would be ripped down two incarnations later of Madison Square Garden would be built on that same site. Now, in 1960, discussions were started with the Pennsylvania Railroad about selling off the air rights above Penn Station for something like an arena to be built. However, they decided that it would be a whole lot easier just to rip the thing down and build the arena directly on top of the station. So despite mounting protests amongst academics, architects, preservationists, the destruction of Penn Station started on October 28th 1963. The new Madison Square Garden was designed by Charles Luckman Associates. It is notable as it's one of the first structures to be built above an active railroad station. Let's look at that. Sure. It can seat up to 20,000 spectators for concerts, basketball, and hockey games. Plus, it has its own theater that seats between 2,000 and 5,600. That would be the Wamu Theater. Mm -hmm. And this new garden opened on February 11th, 1968. 
Notable tenants of the new Madison Square Garden include, as you mentioned, the New York Knicks, the New York Rangers, the New York Liberty. In 2004, Cablevision battled with Bloomberg's plan to build a new Westside Stadium. And I guess we should just stay tuned because the redevelopment of Moynihan Station right behind it is all mixed up in this as well. You know, perhaps there will be a stadium incorporated into that. We should just stay tuned. The arena hosts more than 300 events a year. Just really briefly, some of the most notable would be, I would say, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier's first match. Most people would probably rank that number one. Pope John Paul II's visit in 1979. Sure. Very big deal. Major concerts. Elvis performed here. Elton John has performed, I think, more than any other performer wow. in, this, in this venue. I know Billy Joel had like a series of sellout concerts there. John Lennon's final concerts was actually in Madison Square. Garden. After September 11th, there was a concert for New York City, famously. Right. Mm-hmm. The Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show continues to be held every year, and it was considered the headquarters of boxing before boxing up and left and moved out to Las Vegas. However, it is now home to many WrestleMania events. <laughs> Those are two words that I never thought I'd say on a Bowery Boys podcast. No. But we can counter that with also political conventions that have been here. Of course. I'm sorry. DNC conventions in 1976, 1980, in 1992, and of course, the RNC convention in 2004. Mm. Now, I know we have been sort of dissing a little bit this current incarnation, but I have to say, as a New Yorker, I've seen some of the greatest music acts that I've ever been witness to in my life here. I've seen Radiohead, ACDC, Madonna. I've seen... um, I'm starting to build a little profile of you here, Greg. (laughs) Coldplay, Fleetwood Mac. We have also attended a concert together. Oh, and we we both saw Whitney Houston's uh, many many years ago at the in the Wamu Theater, which at the time was the Paramount Theater. And of course, sporting events. I've been to a Knicks game and, and a Rangers game, and it's part of every New Yorker's experience. So now, next time you attend one of these events, or even if you just happen to walk by Madison Square Garden, look up at it and realize that that is the third spot and the fourth incarnation of that arena. And now you know the connection to Madison Square Park, which you should, of course, stroll down to after you enjoy event at Madison Square Garden. On our blog, Barry Boys Podcast, we will have a link to the garden and, of course, its events and lots of pictures of its incarnation. Maybe a photo of Evelyn Nesbitt. I saw a beautiful one today. Yes, and uh, and Julia Baird. Why not? So as you may have noticed, this is our 99th episode, and we're making it a little extra supersized because we're getting so excited because our 100th episode is right around the corner. We have a topic for it that you have all clamored for. It's coming, folks. I think people know what it is. But because of that, and because Tom is actually leaving for a short trip, that 100 episode will be available a month from now. So I won't have a solo show because that would be very anticlimactic to have a solo show for the 100th episode. Oh, so, but you do a great job on those solo shows, Greg. Thank you, but I just I think that would be appropriate to have you for the 100th. And so we're going to have do a little few things on the blog also to um, sort of commemorate the 100th episode. So. It's also a great time to dive back into the Bowery Boys archives if you want to sort of brush up on episode number 2 through 49. <laughs> and those are available on iTunes or any other podcast aggregator. And what's special about most of them, the early ones are just 
on there normally, but then most of them have photos that come with it. So what you essentially can do is listen to us squawk about a various topic, and then there's actually photos of what we're talking about, and you can on your little portable device or your computer or whatever. So I think it makes it a lot more fun. And that's called the Bowery Boys Archive. So we look forward to gathering with you again for our 100th episode. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.